If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Second uh, Chronicles. Last time I spoke, we looked into the uh, life of Hezekiah, and we talked about Hezekiah as a young man brought about one of the greatest revivals that we uh, see in the uh, Word of God. He uh, opened the house of God, uh, cleaned out the temple, restored the Passover, sent evangelists basically all over the nation, and so on. We get to the end of uh, chapter 31, and his life is summarized for us in these two verses. And thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. He did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. Every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. That's a pretty good summary of somebody's life. I have uh, said to Nancy on more than one occasion, if I die first and she has enough money left in the kitty uh, to afford a headstone, I would like to have those two verses on it. Obviously, it would have to be modified. It would say, and thus David did throughout all America. He did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. Every work that he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandments, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart and he prospered. It's a pretty good way of summarizing somebody's life. Everything this guy did, God put his blessing upon. And uh, then it goes on, one of my pet peeves in the Bible, the chapter divisions. They were never in there originally, but they do help us uh, navigate and get around. But uh, let me keep reading. I'll read that last verse again. Every work that he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. And after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came. Notice, after these acts of faithfulness, not after these acts of rebellion, not after these acts of perversion, not after these acts of uh, disobedience, but after these acts of faithfulness, the enemy comes. A good sign that you are prospering spiritually is that you are under the attack of the enemy. In fact, uh, if the enemy is leaving you alone, it proves to me you're no threat to the kingdom of Satan. You notice the headlines never talk about uh, Jamaica being a threat to America. They don't have nuclear weapons. They don't have any great army. They don't have any great military. They're no threat to us. We talk about the people that do have the weapons, the Chinese, the Russians, and so on. They're our greatest threat. We're constantly aware of them. Why? Because they have the ability to wipe us out. Here is a man that is threatening the enemy, and as a result, the enemy is now threatening him. So once again, a good sign is if you are under the attack of the enemy, then you're doing something that is meaningful for the kingdom of God. If you are not, then I'll let you take that up with the Lord. I want to talk about overcoming your greatest problem, your greatest enemy. Before I get into this chapter, I want to take you to two verses. One is in Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17, it's talking about the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it tells us that uh, it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go. 
that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearer or closer. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war, and they return to Egypt. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And the shortest distance between where the children of Israel were, uh, were at this particular time, where God wanted to take them, was a straight line. The problem is that straight line went right through the camp of the Philistines. And so God looks at the spiritual condition of his uh, children, and in typology, they're just babes in Christ. They've only just been washed in the blood of the Lamb, so to speak, if we put it in New Testament terminology. They're babes, and you don't send a baby to war. Isn't that right? And so God bypasses the problem. He goes along the route to avoid conflict with the enemy. Turn with me then to the book of Judges. And the third chapter. Beginning in verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. Let me read that again. These are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all those who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Notice the first nation, verse 3. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines. There is a time when God will bypass a Philistine and there is a time when God will leave you with a Philistine to learn to fight. I know you didn't come this morning to hear that good news, but the fact is you have to overcome your Philistine. When I pastored, which is a number of years ago now, I would have people come into my office for counsel, for help, expecting to walk out in 10 minutes or five hours or whatever with the problem solved, where I would lay hands on them and impart or depart something and take care of the problem, and they would walk out and say, praise God, you know, thank God for Pastor David. There's other times when I would sit there and say, listen, I am not going to pray for you. Now, I would say it in a very nice pastoral way, of course. But I say, listen, God has put a Philistine in your path, and I'm not going to kill it for you. It's time you learn to open your concordance. It's time you learn to fast and pray. It's time you learn to, you know, there was a time in my own life when I made a, I won't say a vow, that's too strong a word, where I made a decision, I'm not going to go to the altar call anymore because I want to have the same wisdom and power that those people have that are helping me week after week after week after week. I want to be one of them. And the only way you can do that is learn to kill your Philistine. Nancy and I have uh, three daughters. Our oldest daughter is in China. Been there now for 25 years, something like that. Her first year of school was in New Guinea when we were serving the Lord there in Port Moresby, New Guinea. She went to an Australian uh, school, army school, army-based school. She came home one day with her first math assignment. Two plus two equals, three plus one equals, four minus one equals, and so on and so forth, and came to me and said, Daddy, 
help me with my homework. I could have taken that sheet of problems and within literally 35 seconds or 50 seconds, I could have solved it and given it back and said, Lisa, here, now you can go out and play, jump on the trampoline. We didn't have one, but you know, do whatever you want to do. But I realized as her father that she was now in the school. She was no longer at home playing with her dolls and so on and so forth. She was now learning about life. And so I said to her, Lisa, I'm not going to help you after all. What is one plus one? I don't know, Daddy. I don't know. <laughs> about a minute later, we solved that massive problem. And then it doubled. What's two plus two? I don't know, Daddy. <laughs> at the end of about an hour, she solved her problem. She killed her Philistine, as it were. She has a degree today. I don't. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> But imagine what would have happened if she'd have gone to college and then I get letters in the mail, Dear Dad, make sure this assignment is in by the end of the week. <laughs> Dad, there's a project due at the end of the semester. It counts as a third of our grade and I want to give you plenty of notice so you can work on it and, you know, make sure you ship it FedEx. It got lost last time, you know. I mean, we laugh at that, but that's basically what the eldership's for. Now, I'm not going to try and talk them out of the money. But uh, you don't need them if you can get along with God. Isn't that right? Obviously, the younger ones do and so on, but we should be, by this time, you ought to be teachers, Paul says. By this time. He was sick and tired of giving them the bottle, the whole bottle, you know, Corinthians. I'd love to take you out to the outback for lunch, but I've got to give you a milkshake, you know. Paul, you know, that's my translation. I'm getting, getting jabbed, stirred up about lunch already. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's go back. In other words, we have to overcome. God is looking for overcomers. Isn't that right? To him that overcomes. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you have that... Uh, term used over and over about overcoming. Yeah. We've talked about the bride this morning, but the Bible says the bride came down out of heaven as a city, at least one picture, and in order to get into that city, you had to go through the gates, and there's 12 gates, and those gates are made of what? Not made of iron, not made of steel, not made of aluminum, not made of brass or bronze. Come on, Bible school students. Pearl. What is a Pearl. A problem overcome. Every single pearl starts off with a problem. There is no such thing as a genuine pearl without a problem. I've never been an oyster, but I, you know, <laughs> that little bit of grit gets in your shell and it begins to bug you to death and you can do one or two things, allow it to irritate you the rest of your life or secrete the grace of God, so to speak, and turn it into a thing of beauty. And I think God knew what he was talking about. Don't you think God's a little more intelligent than we give him credit for sometimes, you know? Gates of pearl. In other words, a bride is made up of overcomers. And we've got to learn to overcome. After all, we're going to marry. That's the theme. At least let me tie in a little bit of this morning uh, to what I have to say. But we're going to be the bride, as we heard, but we're going to marry a king. We've got to learn to rule and reign. We're going to marry the great judge of the earth. We've got to learn to pass righteous judgment. 
Barry talked last week about some of the basics of uh, true, uh, true churchianity, if you like, what the church is really about. Did you know that the early church, uh, you know, did not go to court? They had their own court. In fact, Paul says it's a shame that you have to go to court uh, out there in the world. You should have your own judges and so on. You know, we're going to judge angels one day. We should be able to do it right now. Is that right? We're going to marry the great shepherd of sheep. We should have a love for the flock. We're going to marry the great physician. We should be able to bind up one another's wounds. In other words, this is we're going to marry the captain of the host. We need to know how to fight and wage a good warfare. In other words, this is our dress rehearsal. All right, let me get back. We're back into Second uh, Chronicles. Verse 1 again, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, besieged the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. Sennacherib is one of the major tyrants, if you like, in the, the Bible in those days. He was a conqueror. He conquered numerous nations and so on. The Assyrians literally would skin people alive, drape their uh, skins on the wall of a city to provoke fear. He was the one that created Nineveh and so on, took over the Babylonians, and he was a, a ruthless dictator. He was a, sort of the Hitler, the Mussolini, if you like, the Stalin of his day. And he is heading towards Jerusalem where Hezekiah is living. And notice it says there, he had already besieged or invaded Judah. He's already besieged the fortified cities. In other words, He's already been successful with some of the people of God. He's gone in and already captured the towns, the cities where they live. Now he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he wants to break into them for himself. Let me suggest to you that the enemy wants you back. Not your back. He wants you back. In other words, God wants to lay claim to you. The enemy wants to lay claim to you. The Bible says that you and I are like a city. Proverbs says, like a city that is broken into and without walls, so is a man or a woman who has no control over their own spirit. In other words, way back when, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, we didn't have the weaponry that we have today, but one of the great uh, things that uh, the cities had was a wall round about them. When I was a little boy, we used to go to the city of York, not too far from where I lived in England, and there was the city of York, and much of the original wall around that city was still intact. And uh, that uh, wall was possibly, I can't remember, but 25 feet high or more, and, uh, you know, eight or nine feet across and so on. And as long as that wall was intact, you could go to bed safe back in the day. You didn't have to worry about being invaded and so on and so forth. And the Bible says that we are like cities, either with or without walls. In other words, if you have a wall around you, you are in control. If you don't have a wall around you, then obviously the enemy has access to your life. And we'll deal with that in a little uh, while there. But it says uh, the enemy wants to break into them for himself. The enemy wants to break into your life. He wants to take over your life. He wants to dominate your life. He wants you back. He wants you for himself. Verse 2, And Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem. We're talking here now about how to overcome the enemy. The first thing that Hezekiah does, he recognizes that he has an adversary. You and I need to recognize that we have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil. 
Again, not the person on the left or the right, not the one in front of you, behind you, but your adversary, the devil. He is there wanting to break into your life, wanting to dominate your life. I don't think... Um, well, sometimes we give the enemy too much uh, attention, but uh, we do need to recognize that we have an adversary. The second thing that Hezekiah does, he makes a decision in verse 3. He decided to do something about it. Many times we're passive. We allow the enemy to sort of do whatever he wants, come into our life and take over, and we don't resist. We just sort of act there like, well, there's nothing I can do. He's bigger than I am. He's stronger than I am or whatever. We sort of give in. Hezekiah decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. And many people assembled. They stopped up the springs in the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find an abundance of water? One of the strategies, and the first strategy that uh, Hezekiah did, he said, Listen, we are surrounded by springs. This city has got numerous springs. Not only that, there is a river that flows outside the city. That means that if the enemy comes and he's coming, we've already got notice that he's coming, that if he comes... He can remain indefinitely as long as there is a supply of water. We have to cut off that which supplies life to the enemy. <clears throat> That's the first thing you've got to do. Recognize you have an adversary. And then the second thing, cut off whatever you're feeding the enemy. It may be pornography, as we heard this morning. It may be anger. It may be lust. It may be some other thing, resentment, pride. Whatever it is, but whatever you are feeding the enemy, as long as you feed the enemy, you will never get rid of him. I'm sure you don't have the problem here in Florida. We're yet to go through a winter here. But I lived in Minnesota for seven years. Was released on good behavior. <coughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but in Minnesota, you know, it can be 20, 30, 40 degrees below. And someday you open the door and you look down and there is that little ball of fluff called a kitten, and it has uh, got away from its parents somehow and landed on your doorstep, and even though you may not be the greatest cat lover in the world, you feel compassion rising up within you. You go to the refrigerator, you pour a bowl of milk, and you set it down, that poor little thing, you know, it's got those eyes that look up, and it begins to lap the water. You close the door, think you've done your deed for the day. Problem is, you have created now a lifelong problem. Try getting rid of it. Try getting rid of it. You fed it. Now try and stop. That thing is going to be there every time you open the door. Every time you open the door. And the same thing is true with the adversary. As long as you feed him, you will never get rid of it. The Bible says don't give place or access to the enemy. Jesus said, Satan cometh and he has what? Nothing in me. Nothing in me. Now, I'm a teacher, so I'll tell you the truth. <clears throat> I've always said evangelists have a sort of a, you know, they can sort of phrase things in a way that, you know, basically it's a lie, but it comes across as being truth, you know. <laughs> you know, if you come forward this morning, get saved, you'll have the greatest life in the world, and so on and so forth. Us teachers are sitting there saying, God's going to take you, slap you on that wheel. He's the master part of apply all sorts of pressure on the inside, mold you, and, you know, you'll wish, you know. 
But if we told you that up front, you'll never get saved. So, you know, the evangelist sort of... <laughs> it's not easy cutting off a supply of water. And it's even harder cutting off a stream that flowed. It takes tremendous determination, tremendous effort, tremendous work. You've got a stream that is flowing, not a puddle where you can bring a couple of wheelbarrows full of dirt and sort of absorb it and, you know, move on, fill in another puddle. No, these are springs. There's life behind them, if you like. There's power behind them. The power of sin is not easily to, easy to overcome, but greater is he that is in you. And we've got to be that determined. Hezekiah was absolutely determined to cut off whatever it was that was sustaining the life of the enemy. And we've got to do the same thing, what we would call in the New Testament repentance. Genuine repentance. Where you acknowledge that what you've been doing is wrong and where you turn and by the grace of God you stand against that thing never to go back that way again. Put your hand to the plow. The next thing that Hezekiah does, verse 5, it says he took courage and he re rebuilt the wall that had been broken down. I mentioned a moment ago that the Bible says we are like cities with walls or without walls. <clears throat> a man that has a broken down wall, again, is going to be invaded by the enemy. And Hezekiah obviously had to go around the city and he had to look and see where he was the most vulnerable. In other words, this requires honesty. Where are my areas of vulnerability? Where are the areas that I need to rebuild? What are my areas of weakness? What are my besetting sins, if you like? I have to be absolutely honest. As I go around the wall, there's a low spot over there. If I don't fix that, the enemy has access. If I don't repair this, the enemy has access. There's another area back there. In other words, this man, again, has to be brutally honest. These are the areas of weakness in our city, in my city. And if I don't take care of them, then obviously the enemy will come in. How do you rebuild a wall? Turn with me to the New Testament for a moment, to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Let's uh, begin in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 28. This person's problem, or weakness, if you like, is stealing. Stealing. I trust that's not your problem. Let him that steals, steal no longer. Now, there is just a plain statement, stop doing what you're doing. But notice that the way in which you rebuild a wall is not just acknowledging the problem, it's fixing the problem. And Paul says to this person, get a job. In other words, this person was not uh, playing around, walking into a 7-Eleven, you know, but because his buddies said to him, listen, you know, I bet you can't go in there and walk out with a pack of cigarettes. And he said, I bet I can. Five minutes later, he comes out sort of flashing his cigarettes and gets a little kick. No, this person was stealing rather than working. In other words, he was making people's life miserable. And so Paul says, get a job, performing with your own hands what is good, in order 
that you may have something to share with the person that has a need. Now that's the opposite of stealing is now giving. In other words, that's how you rebuild a wall. You've been making people's lives miserable. I noticed on the news this week that uh, de Blasio, the mayor of New York, is going to close down Rikers Island. Many, many years ago when Nancy and I first got married back in the 60s, dinosaurs on the earth back then, but, uh, you know, I uh, used to go to Rikers Island with a friend every week, and we uh, had a jail ministry. Rikers Island at that time had about 6,000 inmates, and 90% of them went in for drug-related problems. The problem was heroin. The average addict stole somewhere between $100 and $200 a day to support his habit. And there were 6,000 incarcerated, let alone the tens of thousands around New York City. If you have to steal $100 worth of material, that means that that material, whatever it was, is possibly worth three or $400 before it uh, gets sold on the street. In other words, if you can buy a TV for $100 in the, in the store, you're not going to steal one. You're going to have to get it for $50. And so the average addict was stealing, you know, four, five, six hundred dollars a day. And you can imagine the misery that was caused. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people coming back to, to their apartments every week or every day, find out their television's gone, their jewelry's gone, this priceless object is gone, and so on. They made people's lives miserable. This person has been stealing rather than working. Paul says, get yourself a job. Now that you've got a job, start giving. Find somebody that has a need. The next thing, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. This person doesn't have a problem stealing. This person has a problem with his tongue. He's the uh, gossip in the church or whatever. Everything that he says is unwholesome. And Paul says, stop doing that. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word that will edify, build up. Talk about people in a good way rather than tearing down their reputation. My father used to say the tongue being in a wet place is very apt to slip. And some of us have that problem. A few of you got it, thank you. But... uh, We've got to learn. If you can bridle your tongue, it's the only thing in the Bible that says you're a perfect man. The only thing. It's a sign, again, of being absolutely in control, able to bridle your tongue. And then in verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, Slander be put away from you along with all malice. Here is a person that is full of resentment, full of bitterness, full of anger, unforgiveness, grieving the Spirit of God. And Paul says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving. That's how you rebuild a wall. Again, first of all, acknowledge what it is. This is my problem. It's bitterness. This is my problem. It's lust. This is my problem. Whatever. Now I'm going to start concentrating on that. I'm going to rebuild that. It's going to take time. Again, you don't rebuild a wall in a matter of minutes. In fact, it's harder to rebuild a broken down wall than this to start from scratch. Isn't that right? Because you've got to fit in all the little pieces where it's been broken out and, and so on. But God gives us the grace to do exactly that. 
Again, we're back in verse 5. He took courage and he rebuilt the wall that had been broken down. And he erected towers on it. He erected towers. I don't know if Hezekiah was the first one to erect towers on the wall of Jerusalem or not, or if they'd been broken down along with a broken wall, but uh, at least he begins to erect towers on it. The towers were the early warning system. It was the place where the watchmen stood. Today, all across North America, up in the Dakotas and so on, we've got these huge satellite dishes, at least we used to, that would constantly be scanning the heavens in case some rogue nation launched some sort of attack and we would pick it up on a, on a uh, computer screen that there's something coming towards the United States and then mount some sort of a, an attack to stop that thing. Isn't that right? You know, we have security these days as a result of 9-11. Every time you go to the airport, again, there's a security system. This was the early warning system of the Old Testament. The watchman would stand in the tower. It was his job again to discern what was going on on the horizon. If there was a cloud of dust, he had to determine, is this an advancing army? Or is this, uh, you know, a bunch of merchants coming to the local marketplace, you know, whatever. But once he discerned that it was the enemy coming, he would sound the alarm. If it was the daytime, of course, people out in the fields would come in, bring some produce, bring the cattle back into the, uh, the center of the city, and so on, close the gates, all because they were alert. And the Bible says we need to be on the alert. We need to be watchful. We need to constantly be alert to the enemy's devices. We should not be ignorant. Watch and pray, the Bible says. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil. And so we need, again, the towers in our life where we're constantly alert. If we were literally surrounded by the enemy today, you know, we would have people at the gate there, or at the door as we go out saying, you know, it's clear right now, you know, run for your car or whatever. You know, we, we would approach things totally differently if we were surrounded by the enemy. Isn't that right? We need to do that spiritually. We are surrounded by the enemy. And we should not be ignorant concerning the way in which he operates. And he operates differently depending on, you know, your life and my life. He's got a, a plan. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. Not because he's omniscient, he isn't. But because he's a good fisherman. How many of you like to fish here? Come on, be honest. This is an altar call. Good. Okay. <laughs> Brother back there is ready to go. He's, I used to love to fish, make my own lures at one time. And, so on, grew up on a farm. We had a few uh, small lakes on it, and I used to enjoy fishing. But um, the enemy is a master fisherman. Long ago, he's come to your mind, if you liken your mind to a lake, and he's got his fishing rod, and he puts a lure on the end. And he casts that thing into your life, and he trolls through your mind a few times, casts it a few more times, trolls through... And if there's no response, he replaces that lure with another lure until he finds out what you go after. He may try anger, and he tries it three or four times, and you don't get aroused, and you're just a plain old placid, easygoing sort of a guy, and he says, this isn't working. Puts that lure down, puts lust on the end. Wow. That's why the enemy constantly uses the same lure. 
you will never ever get rid of this, uh, the attack of the enemy, if you like, until you're honest enough to say, I need to deal with this thing in my life. This is where I'm vulnerable. This is the one strategy I know the enemy has picked up on, and he will fish with that thing day in, day out, because he know it works. He knows it works. It's effective. And we've got to make sure that we understand, again, the strategies of the enemy. So you rebuild now again the erecting of towers. We go down to the end of verse 5, and it says that after doing that, Hezekiah made weapons and shields in great number. So far, he has been defending himself. It's been a defensive posture. He's been preparing. Now he's going on the offensive. He's made weapons. He is ready to engage the enemy. We have to engage the enemy, don't we? God has given us an armor to put on, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and so on and so forth, loins good about with truth, all of those things, shield of faith. And then we have the sword of the Spirit. Nancy and I were ministering, at least I was ministering. Nancy was with me, our youngest daughter at the time. We were up in a place called Penang in Malaysia and uh, doing some meetings, staying in the home of a wonderful Chinese uh, uh, doctor. And one afternoon, I had some meetings in the morning and meetings in the evening. We had the afternoon free, and he came in and he said, uh, listen, would you like to watch a, uh, a video? And I said, sure. And so he took a DVD, if you're old enough to remember those, and uh, he put it on, and uh, all of a sudden, we were watching a lady, and I've spent the morning I shouldn't say all morning, but I've been racking my brain trying to think of a name. But anyway, she used to travel with Reinhard Bunke and do all her prayer, all his uh, pre-service uh, prayer. A woman, very godly woman. She's still alive as far as I know. And, uh, but anyway, uh, her name really doesn't matter. But uh, this video was about her speaking about prayer in a uh, church in England called Kensington Temple, a big uh, church there in London. And uh, she was talking about putting on the whole armor of God. And she called up one of the associates there, and she uh, had brought along a sort of little plastic outfit, and she put on the plastic breastplate, and she put on a plastic helmet. She gave him a sword and gave him a shield and so on. And she said, this is the way we're supposed to look as believers. We're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. And, uh, and she said, there is a reason we have to put on the whole armor of God. It's because we are at war. And she said, I'm going to be the devil, and he's going to be the child of God, and we're going to engage in, uh, in warfare for a moment. And so she said, I, I want you to face me. And she began, and she had uh, her own sort of dagger with her, and she began to stab away, and he moved his shield, and she stabbed away, and he moved his shield. It went on for about 30 seconds on this video, and she said, okay, stop, 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 stop. And she turned to the audience and she said, see, he's like most Christians, he never used a sword once. That was worth my entire trip to Malaysia. I mean, literally, I've never forgotten it. Most of us are in a defensive mood, you know, pleading the blood and doing all the things that, uh, you know, maybe we should do in that sense. I don't believe the blood is a rabbit's uh, foot. It's not magic. It's on the basis of what Christ has done. But uh, we don't often use the sword. Is that right? When Jesus was confronted with the enemy, and the temptations, it is written, he kept bringing that sword to bear 
We've got to learn to use the sword of the Spirit. Thank God for the shield of faith. Thank God for the, uh, the uh, breastplate of righteousness and so on and so forth. But we have weapons. And Hezekiah has made weapons. He's ready to engage the enemy. And we've got to do the same thing. And we've got to take that sword. Let me ask you another question. What's the difference between the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and our loins good about with truth? What's the difference between truth and the Word of God? Barry will tell you later. <laughs> the Bible says the sum of thy word, the psalmist says, the sum of thy word, the totality of thy word is what? Truth. It's actually the same word there, the word truth, where it says Jesus came full of grace and truth, the embodiment of who God is. And the sword of the Spirit, if you look up the word there, it is the rhema, not the logos. The logos is a totality. The rhema is a specific word. So when the enemy comes and he is tempting you with uh, some sort of lust, you don't take out that sword and say, Jesus wept. That's the Word of God. That's, that's the Word of God. No, you need a specific word. You need a rhema word. And that sword is carried from the scabbard that hangs around that belt of truth. In other words, you need to know the totality of God's Word in order that at any given time you can draw an appropriate rhema in order to deal with whatever that message, that problem is. And that's why we need to get alone with God, get into the Word of God, know who you believe, know what He's done for us, all that He's accomplished for us on the cross. And so they made weapons and shields in great number. The next thing He does is in verse 6, He appointed military officers over the people, gathered them in the square of the city gate, and He spoke encouragingly to them, saying, be strong, be courageous, do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude that is with him. For the one that is with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. We need to encourage one another. And the Bible says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. They did not have Bibles in those days as we have them. They had to be meticulously written out by hand, and so they were reserved for the king or whoever else. And so he gathers the people together, and he says, listen, don't panic. Yes, the enemy is on the way, but the one that is with us is greater than the one with him. Where did he get that from? Where did that confidence come from? Let me take you to Deuteronomy chapter 21. <clears throat> and verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. Now in the natural, that's the time to be afraid. You're outgunned. The enemy's got more horses than you do. He's got more chariots than you do. You're outnumbered. And yet the Bible says, don't panic, don't be afraid. 
For the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. In other words, remember past victories. It shall come about when you're approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you're approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted, do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. Let me go back now to verse 7 and 8. Greater is the one, uh, for the one with us is greater than one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles, and the people relied on the words of Hezekiah. In other words, he's quoting pretty well a promise that God made. When you go out to battle, the king, is, he knows the word of God. If we know the word of God, we can stand on the promise. Is that right? The old hymns, if you can remember them, standing on the promises of Christ my Savior. You know, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. You know, we need to stand on the promises. There are general promises that we can claim, and then there are specific promises that we can claim. Notice in uh, 2 Kings 20, and I'll, you can read uh, 2 Kings 19 and 20. It ties in with this whole portion of Scripture this morning. But in verse 6 of uh, chapter 20, And I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my, for my servants, oh, sorry, for my servant David's sake. So he had a very specific word. That was a word that was given to Hezekiah by the prophet. So he had the general promise of God, then he had a specific promise of God. I'm not saying you always have to or you always have a specific promise. You can take any promise, all the promises, a yea and amen in Christ. And we need to encourage one another with the Word of God. Listen, whatever you're going through, this is what God's Word says. Casting all your care. Don't panic. Don't tremble. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. The enemy now shows up. Verse 9, And uh, after this, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lake, uh, Lachish with all of his forces with him against Hezekiah, king of Judah, and against all Judah, that were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you're remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourself over to die by hunger, by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and said in uh, Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before one altar? And on that you shall burn incense. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of all the lands? Were the gods of those nations able to deliver them from the, my hand? Who is there among all the gods of those nations which my father has not utterly destroyed who could deliver his people out of my hand? In other words, the enemy comes along and he begins to brag about his greatness, his power. I took out this person. I took out that person. You know, you, you're not going to make it. <clears throat> We've got to be, again, aware of uh, the strategy of the enemy. He even accuses the people of saying, listen, don't let Hezekiah mislead you. I've got more power than you can imagine. I've taken over this city and that city and so on. Hezekiah has destroyed all the other altars, and he's left you with one. In other words, uh, before Hezekiah became king, they were worshiping all sorts of gods, all sorts of uh, heathen 
practices were going on, Hezekiah went through that whole cleansing process and got them back to one God. And uh, they don't understand it. The enemy doesn't understand it. Listen, you used to have all sorts of gods you could rely on. And this crazy Hezekiah that you're putting your trust in has left you with one God. That one God is not sufficient. We've destroyed nation after nation. You're not going to make it. Thank God the one God they got left was the God that is far above all principalities and powers. And the enemy will do everything he can to whisper in your ear, listen, I took out so-and-so, I took out this person, I took out that person, who are you? You've never been to Bible school, you're not very strong, I can bring you down. Verse 15, now therefore do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom is able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my father's. How much less should your God deliver you from my hand? The enemy, again, is a master, isn't he, at trying to bring discouragement, trying to bring doubt, trying to bring unbelief, where we begin to cower and think, boy, I, you know, I'm not that strong. I've only been a Christian for a couple of months or whatever it is. And, you know, the enemy here is beginning to magnify again his power. Listen, we have a God that is greater than all the powers of darkness. God that says, call unto me and I will answer you. Let's drop down to verse 19. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as the gods of the people of the earth, the work of man's hands. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this, and they cried out to heaven. Here is a man who is a great king, and yet he is not going to rely upon his own strength. He writes a letter, he draws into his problem another man, Isaiah. Sometimes we try and battle it out alone. The Bible says one will chase a thousand, two ten thousand. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves and say, listen, the enemy has been after me, the enemy's come in like a flood. I need you, brother. I need you, sister. Would you pray with me? Thank God that here is a king who acknowledges I am not strong enough in and of myself. I need another man to stand with me. Two will chase 10,000. And the two of them begin to pray. And I suggest that we need one another. There are times when we need to go to a brother and sister and say, listen, I've done everything I can. The enemy just seems to be unrelenting. I've been fasting, I've been praying, I've been confessing and acknowledging, trying to rebuild the wall and so on, but the enemy has come and he keeps uh, saying, you know, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, and I need your help. And they begin to pray, verse 21, and the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. And he returned in shame to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, even some of his children killed him with a sword. And the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. I would love to rewrite this chapter. It would read like this. And after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, besieged the fortified cities, sought to break into them for himself, 
And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, he prayed with Isaiah the prophet, and the Lord sent an angel. I don't like having to rebuild walls, dam up rivers, be on the alert, all that stuff. I just want God to take care of it. Is that right? In other words, sometimes we're expecting the supernatural to take care of what God says we're, we're supposed to do. Angels don't come and read you the Bible as a bedtime story. You've got to read it for yourself. You know. The last thing he does is prayer, not as a last resort, but because he's done everything else that God required of him. It's no use you praying if you're not willing to obey first. It's no use you getting with a brother or sister if you haven't repented and made your determination, I'm not going to do this or that or whatever it is that God is requiring of you. Then after having done all, then pray. Stand. And then God can work because you've done what He's required of you. There is a process in the Word of God. So often we want, you know, some prophetic word or something to sort of resolve our problems. Somebody to lay hands on us and, like I say, impart or depart something. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to be a mature person. I remember during the Pensacola revival that night after night, the students that were there in the school would uh, come in almost in an obnoxious way and stand before some man of God before John Kilpatrick and sort of elbow their way, stand in front of, you know, Michael Brown, sometimes stand in front of me or whatever, wanting me to lay hands or wanting Michael Brown, and, and then they'd run from one to another, you know, so they went around all the men of God wanting to be sort of zapped, if you like, and so on. I stood in class one day and I said, listen, I believe in the impartation of the laying on of hands, but one thing that cannot be imparted is character. You've got to earn that. And I think sometimes we've got to realize the balance. Sometimes we've got to work at it. God says, listen, you repent. You rebuild the wall. You be on the alert. You encourage a brother or read the Word of God, get to know the promises of God, and so on. Then you can pray. Then God will give you the answer. I don't know who's here this morning but maybe you're facing again some sort of situation and you've said, I've done everything. I've been fasting, I've been praying, I've been seeking God and so on. Let's just stand to our feet, maybe as the worship team comes for a moment. But if you're in that place where you need an Isaiah, you need somebody to stand with you this morning, we're here to minister to you. But I'm not here to kill your Goliath. I'm not here to kill your Philistine. God has left a Philistine in your life, and you have to overcome that thing. But if you've done everything else, and you say, listen, I'm just about at my wit's end. I can't take the pressure anymore. I don't know what's going on, but I've been doing everything right. Then you need, again, an Isaiah, somebody to stand with you. If that's you this morning, these altars are open. We will have some of the leadership come stand with you and pray with you. So if that's you this morning, just come just as we close, as the uh, music goes on. If you need to leave, just feel free to slip away quietly. But let's allow God just to do what only God can do.